welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show, finding it if you're a first-time listener, um, being someone who supports alternative media. That is so appreciated and so important in the times that we're living through. I really do feel it's a transformative time in our political lives and uh, our our own media spaces are going to be all that much more critical. Uh, so a subscription to the print magazine, it's a great way to support Counterpunch. You can also just make a donation, tax deductible, all of that stuff. Use PayPal, pick up the phone, do what you got to do, support Counterpunch. It's very, very appreciated. So uh, I'm very happy to be able to talk to somebody today who uh, I've been meaning to talk to for a number of months, but <laughs> for scheduling reasons, it hasn't quite happened. So I'm happy to have him here. I'm really excited to talk to Dean Wareham. Uh, Dean is a musician, somebody whose work I respect, who I followed a long time, and whose work I recommend uh, very highly. DeanWareham.com is the website, at Wareham Dean, that's Wareham, W-A-R-E-H-A-M, the name Dean, on Twitter. Uh, Dean, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for getting the, for, for pronouncing my name right. Well, I, I I assumed it was like Dur- like Bull Durham. Yeah, so I was yeah. just going out on a limb with that one. No, you're right. The H is silent. You never know. When you go up into Massachusetts, there's all these towns that it's uh, actually there's a town named Wareham in Massachusetts, but it's Wareham. Well, so. we don't we don't consider Massachusetts pronunciations legitimate <laughs> American. English, so. So, uh, okay, so I want to start by asking you the most generic question that probably you hate to get as a musician, um, but I do think it would be nice for people who are not familiar with you and your work uh, to just kind of get your origin story, how you got into being a rock musician, how you got into music and the music industry, and uh, what some of those experiences were like. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I thought you were going to ask me what comes first, music or lyrics, so I'm glad you didn't. You didn't ask me that. How, well, as a, I, as a poet, I know what takes primacy. Okay, yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> I got into music. Well, um, I guess, you, you know, we all kind of get into, we get most excited about music, I think, in our teenage years. That's when it's really, that's when we, I feel like, develop a lot of our initial uh, uh, opinions and and. and and loves and discover things that kind of stay with us. And for, for me, those years are, um, my teenage years are the, are the punk years. That's when I arrived in, um, I arrived in New York city. I'm originally, I was born in New Zealand. I lived in New Zealand and then I lived in Australia and moved to New York age 14 in, uh, 1977. Um, so I saw a lot of the punk bands started a band myself uh, the summer after senior year of high school. A friend of mine uh, had this idea to start a band because he thought it would help him get a girlfriend. And uh, it kind of did. Um, I went to I went to college. I went to Harvard University. I was there for four years. I had a band called Speedy and the Castanets. We were not we were not very good. We were not a very good band. But uh, but um, that band actually um, after college, like a, a couple years later, kind of became uh, my first band, Galaxy 500, with a with a different bassist. Uh, so it was my uh, my high school high school and college friend Damon Krukowski and and um, his girlfriend Naomi Yang, who became the the bassist. Um, this is uh, this is now 1987, summer of 1987. Um, I was uh, living in New York doing 
temp jobs and they came down for this for the summer and we just started jamming together i think that, um, naomi had not ever really played an instrument but uh i think sometimes the best thing to do to do in a band instead of auditioning a whole lot of people is just find people that you you have shared opinions with and and, and, and learn how to play together. We all learned how to play together. We didn't really know what we were doing. Isn't that isn't that sort of a common theme in the origin stories of a lot of punk bands of that era? I mean, you hear that about Crass. You hear that about a lot of some of the other ones that we remember uh, historically. Uh, did you find that that was true, that a lot of people started out without really musical uh, skill? <laughs> Certainly with the with the punk bands, that's true. And, and um, Mary Harron famously said that... that at that time, she she wrote for for Punk magazine. Then she she later became a a documentary film. Uh, sorry, not, she did, she made documentary and then she made uh, feature films. But uh, she she said that rock and roll is one art form that is arguably done better by people who are not proficient on their instruments than by people who are the people people who are. And uh, I think um, that's kind of true. Not it's not always true. It's not doesn't. I mean, Jimi Hendrix would be an exception to that rule, I would say. I, what I'm what I'm also interested in just knowing a little bit about your bio and uh, some of some of your experiences in that period. I'm interested in sort of the intersection between your growing interest in uh, you know music and, and and being a musician and playing rock music and I guess in a more serious way and uh, growing interest in politics that you developed particularly around your time in uh, in college in Harvard. So can you talk a little bit about the intersection of those two and how they sort of correlate? Yeah. Well, I was, uh, I guess I, I was actually more politically active uh, in college. Um, you know, I try to think of my, my, my early political experiences. I guess my, you know, my first real, first thing that really sticks in my, my head about politics is when I was, I was living in Australia in 1975. And we had a prime minister named Gough Whitlam, the Labour prime minister, a social democrat, not even particularly on the left wing of the Labour Party, I don't think. But he started asking um, questions about what the CIA were doing in uh, at, at Pine Gap, uh, where they were collecting information. This uh, this story kind of have you, have you ever seen the Falcon and the Snowman? It's the story told in told in that. Anyway, that what I'm getting to is that uh, Guff Whitlam was removed from office. Uh, by the Queen's representative, Philip Kerr, the, the governor general, with the assistance of uh, the M MI6 and the CIA. It was just, it was, it was too much to, to, to question Australia's role in the Vietnam War. That was a, a bridge too far. And uh, this is all well-documented. This is not some crazy, crazy theory of mine. Um, so I, I uh, it's kind of stuck with me and that, and I'm reminded of it Recently, every time I see, you know, one of my friends talk about how the point of the, the CIA standing up and, and objecting about the interference in our elections, and I just kind of have to laugh. I'm like, well, that's yeah, that's what you guys do, isn't it? Yeah, I sort of have the monopoly on that one, I think. Yes, and I, I also actually think it's it's an interesting, uh, about, just about the, the power of the Queen, the Queen of England, because people say, well, you know, it's just a figurehead, she has no power. I'm like, no, actually, she does have power. And, and she doesn't, she doesn't yes, she, in the day-to-day -day operating, you know, of, the, of Great Britain, no, she doesn't have power. But, but when push comes to shove in, 
in situations like that, she has the power to remove the Australian prime minister. So I, I think, um, or, or you saw the same in, um, in Spain last year where, um, the king intervened in the whole situation in, in Catalonia. And you're kind of like, well, why, why do we have a king at all? When I was in high school, I, I, uh, I took a German class. We, led a, we read a lot of Bertolt Brecht. Then that kind of changed my life. He changed my life. Um, I, I read the Communist Manifesto too. I liked that book. And um, I went to, I went off to college and um, I think uh, freshman week I, I ran into a, a Trotskyist. I don't even know what Trotskyists were, but I became involved with this uh, a Trotskyist group, much hated on the, on the, on the rest of the left, the, uh, the Spartacist League, now the, now the ICL. So I would got involved. I would sell uh, the newspaper on, on campus and 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 other, and other places too. It was not a fun time to be um, to be a leftist on campus in the the, the Reagan years, the eighties. It was, uh, if anything, you saw like the, a growth of right wing student activism, conservative clubs at uh, at Dartmouth, at Harvard, and Harvard. But the big, I guess, the big issues on campus were divestment from South Africa. And um, uh, the, what was going on in Nicaragua and El Salvador? Those seem like those were the, the big issues of the day. One of the one of the things that I always hear from people that I've spoken to who are leftists uh, who either graduated from Harvard or spent some time at Harvard or really any Ivy League school, although Harvard maybe most uh, most specifically, and that is that. Often you hear people coming into Harvard without really having an understanding of what class is and leaving Harvard really understanding something about class in America. Is that something that, that you experienced there, really learning about class and wealth and status? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's right there. And you have, there's, there's all kinds of people, I guess, uh, un, uh, undergraduates. You know, again, I, I probably learned more about I, le I learned more about a lot of things from this Trotskyist group than I did from uh, social studies, uh, you know, but that was my major. But from, from them, I learned more about the, the French Revolution, the Vietnam War, the Russian, all, all the stuff that they uh, were very keen to, to educate on. I mean, in terms of uh, people that you might have encountered, like one, I remember reading an account of somebody saying, you know, I came in thinking that I was kind of wealthy and then understanding that I was actually not wealthy in America oh, yeah. and that I encountered what real wealth looked like. And these children of, chil uh, you know, of, of people who probably have had fortunes for g multiple generations and understanding what class dynamics look like from that perspective. Right. Well, you know what? I actually probably experienced that more keenly at, at high school at a, the, the private high school I went to in New York City you know yeah I, I'm from a relatively wealthy petty bourgeois family I guess but but I'm not like trust fund wealthy I'm not I mean it's just just I was around kids who just it's like well wealth is just you know a, a whole other level and I found, I guess, if I go back to, you know, class reunions, that the, those kids whose parents lived on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue, well, their kids tend to live there, too, end <laughs> up living there, too. I know I, I grew up on the on the Upper East Side, so I'm somewhat privileged, but I grew up, you know, we, we lived on 75th between the 3rd and Lexington, which is only a couple blocks away. And yet it's actually uh, at the time felt like a world away from Park Avenue. Oh yeah, absolutely. At that at that time, for sure. Now, yeah. not so much. Um, <laughs> now that's all multi-million dollar uh, playground. 
Um, so I wanted to ask you, um, before we jump to the break, I do want to ask you a little bit about your experience in the, in the music industry at that time in, in the 1980s and into the early 1990s, once Galaxy 500 is really a big deal, um, because that music industry is quite different from what the music industry looks like today. So maybe if you could tell us, uh, you know, what your experiences were like as a young person, um, you know, developing this career versus say what you see about the music industry today yeah well I think the first thing you learn about the, the music industry is that it changes very quickly every five years you're like what it's uh, uh, you know companies consolidate um, new, new media comes along I don't know it's just yeah it's just changed it has changed wildly since I got into it in the, well, I'd say I got into it in 1988, realistically. Let's, if we look back then, um, we were signed to a little indie label just because that's, it's, it wasn't really a political statement. It's just like bands like us, you didn't, you didn't, we didn't get signed to major labels. You just, you didn't even, it just wasn't on the radar. It wasn't even a, a possibility. I think that that all changed with the with grunge, with the grunge revolution. All of a sudden, um, alternative rock became big, big business, and, um, and that's heading into the the compact disc, compact disc years, the '90s, which is an era of of super profits for the record industry. I think unlike anything they'd ever seen, and they, and and obviously they'll they'll never see it again. Um, just when, when uh, this era, when they're well, when they're, they convince everybody to throw out their vinyl and get and get instead get stuff on CD, this new format that they were charging somewhat outrageous prices for. When you when you figure out what's actually what it costs to really make compact discs, you know they were like be like seventeen dollars more than vinyl. When in fact, look at look at the thing. Like actually, vinyl should cost a lot more. Uh, I guess yeah. So I was on an indie label for for years. Then I was on a major label, signed a big contract. You know, but that was my, with my next band, Luna. We signed a signed a contract that now now looking at it, I realize how clever it was. But uh, um, it, I, I look at my statements and we're we're a million dollars in debt, and I'm just like, well, not that I don't have to pay it back, but I won't see money from those records because that million dollars will just because of the way that the, the accounting they do, and it's all it's all written it's all written out, it's all right there in the in these long contracts that you sign. Um, so from that period, from that period, then though, I mean that's the period, like that's the period that I grew up in. I, I I remember my earliest memories of purchasing music was right at the period when they were phasing out cassettes and bringing in CDs, and uh, so I I grew up buying CDs and all of that. And and obviously for me, at least, and for people of my generation, the big transformation was the MP3 and the download yes. and the downloadable music, and that was something that really took place while I was kind of in high school and college, that, that transformation. So I'm, I'm curious how you experienced that transition yeah. in the music industry. I mean, you're, you're right, actually, to pinpoint that it's, it's the MP3, actually, is the crucial invention. I mean, a lot of people say the iPod, they go hand in hand, but, but without the, or Napster, but, but all of this is predicated on the invention of, of the MP3, where all of a sudden you can have a perfect, well, close enough to perfect copy of music that's that they put that has been digitized and put on these CDs, and that was the beginning of the end for 
for, for, for I guess the super profits of the, of the record industry, for the record industry as we know it. It's a big, you know, when people say the music business, it's sort of like saying the economy. It's a big thing. And, you know, I operate in one small corner of it. There's, there's music publishing, there's, there's concerts, there's sales of physical units. But, but obviously, um, in, the last, in the last 20 years, revenues to the music industry are down like 50% from 1999 to uh, 2019. But the, the 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 weird thing is that you know music is still uh, incredibly important to so many people's lives. Music is you know if they do studies you know what what percent of of Apple's worth is related to music, and you know I've I've heard like twenty percent thrown out there or with YouTube. What percent of when people are going to YouTube, thirty five percent of the time they're going there to listen to music. So the money is still there. It's just that. Instead of record companies making it, internet technology companies are making them. They're selling ads alongside pirated music or not pirated music or whatever. So. That's interesting. So, so in, in effect, what you're saying then is that the transformation in technology didn't necessarily destroy the music industry. It sort of changed where the capital was being stashed. Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess it. So it did. It did. It was a shift from. Uh, like music companies to technology companies. And, you know, you hear like U2 and Metallica complaining about this too. You know what? It's, to me, it's, it's all, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's very different now. Obviously it's very hard to sell anything. It's hard to sell music, whether that's even a download or it's, it's almost just not even worth asking what you're selling, but there are upsides. There is some, there is some streaming income. It's, you know, it's, it's as the again as the technology shift as people's instead of instead of buying music people just aren't gonna won't, won't buy music anymore but but they will stream there's there's some income there and you know for obviously the the internet is it's destroyed so many jobs it's and I guess album designer you know it used to be a fairly lucrative job maybe for some people a photographer rock band photographer that as all the, the budgets that the record comes have dried up all those those jobs kind of went went away um I, you know i will say it's easier than ever now for musicians to connect directly to their fans without having to be signed to a record company or have a have a publicist so for someone like myself who's already got something of a fan base you know there are there, Good things there. I can, I can connect with ten thousand fans a lot easier. I can I can tell people that I have you know I'm playing a show, you know somewhere in Germany and get get the word out a lot easier than I. But there's a lot more work too. Um, you know, like for, for all of us, I think the, the internet has shifted a lot of work onto us at home, right? Um, yeah, everybody's everybody's life is a series of gigs. Yes, and. Um, I'm a, you know, I'm a travel agent, you know, part of my job now seems to be doing social media. People advise me, well, it's it's kind of exhausting. I don't like it, but it's, (laughs) it's one of the few tools we have left. Indeed. All right. uh, Let's jump to a break. A lot more to talk about with Dean Wareham. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
here with Dean Wareham chatting about his experiences in the music industry, how, how the industry has changed and evolved and maybe devolved, I guess, as a matter of perspective. Um, so before the break, Dean, you were talking a little bit about uh, how streaming and social media and, and new technology has kind of changed the industry and changed the way that artists interact with their fans. And I guess the broader question I want to ask in relation to that is, could we use the word democratized or could we use the word stratified? In other words, is the music industry more democratic now with social media and technology available to all artists, regardless of their connections, or is it increasingly stratified because of the nature of how the technology actually works? Right. I think it's more democratized. I think I would have to, I would have to say, but just, just in in all kinds of tech recording technology is cheaper as well. So, uh, it's very easy for someone to record at home and put something up. And I, and I kind of believe with rock and roll that if you do something good, um, something new, something memorable, that people are going to discover it. And it doesn't mean you're going to get rich from it or it's going to be hugely successful. And maybe it won't, maybe they won't discover it until 20 years later. Although I, I tend to think if you do something good that it, it gets noticed. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's it's easy, it's easier than that. Maybe it's too easy. You could make an argument that it's too easy. Well, that's actually <laughs> that's actually kind of what I'm what I'm what I'm getting at in a sense because like for as a writer, okay, uh, today in in 2019, I can write whatever the heck I want. I can self-publish it, make a physical book, make an online book, a Kindle version. I can sell it. I can hawk it on my own podcast. I can do all of those things. No doubt about it. It's very easy for me to do that. But it's very difficult for me to sell anywhere close to the number of copies I might have sold 30 years ago if I had gone the traditional route of publishing with a publishing company. In other words, you, it's easier to produce the content. I think it may be more difficult to distribute it to a wide audience. It, that's true. And it's certainly harder to get paid for it. And, and I think, um, yeah, because everybody's a writer. I mean, everybody's on, you know, reading each other's stupid commentary on Facebook. So, um, 
so at that time spent uh, on Facebook that that you, you know you could be spending re- reading uh, real writers such as yourself. But yeah, it's 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 harder. Certainly, it's harder for a young band to get an advance from a record company to like pay for the making of a record if they want to go in the studio because a record company has to look at this and be like, oh well, how you know if we give you ten thousand dollars, how are we going to make ten thousand dollars back? It's you know it's so hard to sell one thousand CDs, uh, and I think the same with same with books. Obviously, That's, I think any any writer will tell you that the the, the, the or, or 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 musician that the the advances have shrunk, but. Um, yeah, or even or even the number of copies it takes to get onto the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, it's a fraction of what it used to be, right? And it's oh, not oh, all, yeah, you know, same it's, for, it's same for records, same right? For exactly, records. same for you know to be on the Billboard chart or whatever. I mean, it's a fraction of what it used to be, and it's not all because of the technology. I think it also is reflective of uh, social dynamics and and cultural shifts, including what you mentioned to move away from physical copies of things to streaming. Uh, there's a lot of different reasons for why I think that's happened. Yeah. I mean, look, a couple of years ago, Bob Dylan had his first number one album ever. And so did Jimmy Buffett. Now, this doesn't mean that he's bigger than ever, not, not Firefather, but it's just a, in a given week, he could put out a record. And maybe if it's a slow week and 200,000 Bob Dylan fans bought it, that's top of the charts. You know? Well, and also it has to do with the demographic of who's buying the music. Older yes, people yes. will buy physical copies. People who listen to Bob Dylan are going to buy physical copies of things. People listening to Cardi B are going to their Spotify. That's true. So I, I think that's pretty interesting because, you know, as somebody on the outside of that industry, it, it, it very much is uh, reflective of a lot of the trends you've seen in other industries, but in some ways quite unique just because of what the music industry is and what the content it produces is. I'm curious about mainstream versus non-mainstream and what that actually means today in your mind because in my in my view even in the time that i've been consuming music going back to you know the 1990s i think that the meaning of the word mainstream has changed i think what qualifies as mainstream or non-mainstream has changed and as somebody who has spent you know decades now in the industry in a non-mainstream and mainstream capacity how do you view that change yeah um mainstream as opposed we're talking about music yeah i mean i think that the word mainstream in music today doesn't mean exactly what it used to mean yeah i mean i guess i mean like like if i was to go back again to 1987 and look at look at the charts and it and the mainstream stuff there's like bon jovi and huey lewis in the news and i don't know for us looking at it, it was like okay well we're not that's, that's just the whole world that we're not even going to attempt to compete with now i actually think you can have even sort of certain indie rock bands can get can get way bigger than they used to yeah you know that's kind of exactly what i'm getting at right is that there was a time when there was a hard delineation between a mainstream rock band and an indie rock band and those and nary those those two worlds should mix you know but uh these days we've seen a number of examples of bands that start out as very much indie rock bands that are maybe just you know word of mouth in the pitchfork world or whatever it is and all of a sudden you know five years later they're playing arena rock shows that's true they are no yeah i think uh yeah, I mean bands like um, um, uh, trying to think what are they called uh, the ones from from, uh, from Montreal, the Arcade, Arcade Fire. Fire, Arcade yeah, Fire. Yeah. They, could, they could play Madison Square Garden or Vampire Weekend could you know come out and have a number one album for for one week. That was unthinkable uh, for us in the in the late eighties. 
I'm trying to think about, you know, I, I, I listen to some, you know, I, I take pleasure in some mainstream, some pop, in some pop music for whatever that's Madonna, the, or, the, or, you know, to, you know, Kanye, hip hop. My son was really into hip hop. He kind of got me listening to some more of that. You know, and even in, in hip hop is another uh, good example where you've seen a blurring of that line. People who are now some of the biggest stars in hip hop, like Chance the Rapper, who's, you know, one of the biggest names now. I mean, this this guy comes directly from the indie world without any connection to a mainstream label. Word of mouth through SoundCloud and social media. And all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years later, he's in TV commercials and he's sitting courtside at the NBA finals. Yeah, yeah, that's true. No, so th- things can happen a lot, a lot quicker than than uh, than they used to be. You know, if I go back and get to Galaxy Five Hundred Days, the the reason that people would go to England is because things could break in England because you had a national, you had national radio, you had national music press that all these kids bought. Um, and you, oh, had John, oh, oh, you had John Peel. You had yeah, John Peel, exactly. So we yeah. don't have anything like that. Like, yeah, so whereas in the United States, it's, it's, it's vulcanized. It's sort of state by state. I mean, if you, if, to, to get big at radio, you have to, well, you probably have to pay as well. You do have to pay as well. That's, that's kind of been proven. But. You had a great contribution on uh, the 25th anniversary album for Counterpunch, and you know that was that was uh, kind of got me thinking about you know I got to get Dean on the show and I want to talk to him about about music and about people that he's known and all of this other stuff. So I kind of want to ask you how you came to find Counterpunch when that happened. I mean, we've been around now a little over 25 years. When did you first encounter it? Um, well, I've been following Alexander Coburn a long time. I used to read his column in, 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 the, in the Village Voice. You know, I, I, it may have been through Workers' Vanguard, I think, because that, that, they, uh, they wrote an article called Defend the Scoundrel. When, when he was, uh, Coburn was fired from the Village Voice for accepting a $10,000 grant from um, an Arab foundation. And um, they wrote an article defending him. Um, I can read it to you <laughs> if you want. Oh, you can look, you can look it up. Uh, fortunately, he, he then got, they got a job at the Nation and continued to write at the Wall Street Journal. Um, uh, so I would go. I would buy the Nation just to read. Really, the only reason was to read his column in it. Um, Twenty-five years. Just say when was Counterpunch founded. 94 94 um you know he's just a he's a he's a a, a wonderful writer and um it, it you know when he when he passed away i think people like that are not replaceable um like someone who has a had this connection you know to the to the old left through his father um to the new left, which he was, you know, immersed in. And, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, that kind of hit me hard when he, when he passed away quite suddenly. Yeah, it was definitely sudden. I, I, I was not aware of anything until I heard it happened. And that, but again, I guess let's look at, at counterpunch, uh, you know, it just sort of like shifting technologies, you know, you think when you go, you start this website, like, oh, it's just a website. And for, in the early days of 
of the web, it was considered less important, you know, less oppressed, and the print media was more important. But um, Counterpunch, you know, grew and grew and grew, right? And it became, I'm sure his audience there was much larger than it was uh, writing a, a page every couple of weeks um, at The Nation. Yeah, and I think, and, and Counterpunch was sort of an early entrant into what we now refer to as the alternative media. And, uh, you know, well before we really had that term in common usage, Counterpunch was sort of forging the path of alternative media on the left. Yeah, I mean, I find I, I I don't know what I would do with that kind of. It's just well, it's it's my so it's set to the to the homepage on my computer. It's the first thing I look at every day, and it's kind of essential to get these voices. I mean, I remember I remember seeing I remember seeing Alexander on the Ted Koppel on Nightline with Ted Koppel years and years ago discussing the theory that the the Russians had assassinated the Pope, which I thought was was ludicrous, and he. Uh, he said to Ted Couple, you never have people like, like me on Couple. Couple's like, well, you're here now. But I think, you know, I think actually Coburn, and um, he used to read Workers' Vanguard also. He, he described them as Marxist, Leninist, Bonkerist. Yeah, that uh, sounds about right. <laughs> which is a clever phrase. But, he, you know, I, I think he, you know, he probably shared their position on issues like uh, Afghanistan or, or if there were a few other things where... Uh, Unpopular positions. I promised. I promised a certain managing editor of Counterpunch that I would ask you this question. So I'm going to ask you this question, and I, I, I want you to tell us a story. I want to hear the story of your encounter with Flava Flav on a oh, okay. on an airplane. I thought you were going to ask me about um, my encounter with Alan Dershowitz at college, but uh... oh, that's up next. <laughs> Flavor Flav, yes, I was on tour in Australia. It must have been 1997. And um, I had an early morning flight from Melbourne to Brisbane where we were playing a festival. Public Enemy were playing this festival too. And the seat next to me was empty and we were about to take off and all of a sudden Flavor Flav comes and sits down next to me. He had tried to sit in first class but been kicked out, I think, because he didn't have a seat up there. So he got stuck next to me. And he wouldn't put his... He reclined his seat and he wouldn't put it up for takeoff. And the man behind us was, was like knocking on his chair saying, excuse me, put, you have to put your seat up. If we have an accident, my daughter will hit her head. And he stood up and turned around. He's like, man, you got to think positive. Me and you and her, we're all going to get there fine. High five. And uh, <laughs> we, we talked for a while. He drank about three gin and tonics within an hour. He told me about the clock. He was wearing the clock that's set to six o'clock. And I was like, why is it six o'clock? And he said, because it's straight up and down, just like I'm being with you right now. Um, anyway, that was fun. And I ran into him later that evening. I think I was kind of sitting alone backstage somewhere. And he, and he was walking around with like five other guys with him. And he, said, he looked at me and he said, hey, man, where's your posse? Because I didn't have one. But, um, that, that, that's... <laughs> That's so funny. I, I actually want to use that line um, straight up and down. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to ask you a, a serious question, I suppose. Maybe I should have reversed the order of those two. But um, political music, uh, this is something that, I, you know, obviously people like me and, uh, you know, people listening to us now obviously seek out music that aligns with some of our, with our political views, et cetera. But 
I want to ask you whether you think that the, that changes in the music industry and in social taste and consumption consumption habits and whatever. Do you think that there's less emphasis on uh, politically charged music today? Is it maybe that the music industry is just so much more diffuse because of social media and all these other things that it's harder to notice all of it? Uh, or is it just that it's a matter of perspective and there's just so much out there that we can't notice it? I'm just I'm wondering because you know. I came of age at a time when Rage Against the Machine was one of the biggest bands in the world and one of the most politically charged bands in the world. And I, I don't know that there's really a good comparison to that now. No. I wonder, do you think Rage Against the Machine fans connected with their politics? Or It depends. I think it... I think yeah. it depends on how old you were. I was a bit on the younger side uh, when they were coming out. So for me, it was more a, re- a rebellious against your parents kind of thing. Right. Um, re- you know, rebellion against your parents. It wasn't until, you know, a, a, f- a number of years later, maybe by the time I got to high school, uh, I guess it was like junior high when they, when they were popular. Yeah. Like by the time I was in high school, I started to have a bit more of a politically charged understanding of the music and appreciate it at a different level yeah i mean i was i was certainly inspired by the the music and the politics of the clash of joe strummer um someone who i think uh you know took it all very seriously and really challenged himself to be revolutionary in his in, in musical form and 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 and, and lyrically also and um Although, you know, I remember I, I saw the Clash at Bonds in 1980 in New York. They they played, uh, I think they were booked for uh, six nights when they wound up playing a lot, I think 18, because the fire marshals came and shut down. Anyway, the night I was there, um, they had some socialist group was handing out uh, literature about the Sandinista revolution. Their album was titled Sandinista, and they got... Um, Grandmaster Flash were opening with the opening band and they got booed off the stage with like racist taunts and fingers raised. <laughs> and that was, that was disheartening to say the least to see that. So here you are, you have Joe Strummer, his, his politics on the one hand, but then on the other, you know, some of his fans from Long Island chanting disco sucks. It, it meant something else to them. Um, but, uh, I mean, politics and music, if it's, you know, I feel like if it's done intelligently, I, I love it. Um, other people, I'm trying to think about So someone like Eugene Chadbourne, I don't know if you know him, but he's, he was political and fun. You have to, you know, be Funny, but I, I, I can't believe I, I, I can't believe you just referenced Eugene Chadbourne. So I could tell you right now that I would put my I would bet my paycheck that I am the only person who's hearing us right now who knows who the fuck uh, that is. Yeah. But uh, Shockabilly is awesome. I lo- I actually love Eugene Chadbourne. Oh yeah, well Shockabilly is is um, is kind of how it's, I wound up working with Kramer, who produced the first Galaxy Five Hundred records, because I had been to see Shockabilly at this club called Eight BC in the in the East Village. But anyway, yes, politically very sharp, very funny guy. Um, I think often, you know, with, when people try and write political songs, often they're just sort of uh, tepid or lame or I don't, I don't know, just not, not, not saying very much. So. I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time really finding uh, compelling 
politically charged music in the Trump era because there is so much of it. There is so there there there's so much to uh, you know say about Trump and to make statements about Trump and it's it's kind of so easy that it almost feels obligatory, right? You have these pop stars who are saying you know being against Trump for LGBT reasons or whatever the reasons may be, and it just it all seems so boring, so homogenized, so lacking in any substance of political critique. No, it's not enough. You're right. It's so easy. Yes, of course we're opposed to Trump, to Donald Trump. But uh, the question is, I guess, what we're going to what we're going to replace him with. And, you know, all, all my life, you always hear, you know, anybody but Reagan, anybody but Bush, anybody but Trump. It's actually that's that's not enough. Uh, I mean, Lord knows he's 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 dangerous. <laughs> he's a he's a danger to the world. Uh not the worst president in my lifetime. I mean, I think uh, Bush was, I mean, at least to date, so far, did, did more damage and more unleashed, unleashed more violence on the world than, than, uh, than Donald Trump has. But yeah, perhaps uh, in total, in total body count, you know, <laughs> probably though, uh, I think that Trump is, is, is unlocking certain forces in the country that may down the road become, uh, even, even more sinister for the world. Yes, that's true. He's, he's more, obviously he's more openly racist. You know, I, I had some people over to, to dinner over the summer and I was, and I was kind of saying, well, we still wake up in the same country, uh, it hasn't become a, a, a fascist country yet. Um, and one of the guests was this like Mexican-American woman. She's like, well, for you, you're white. Yeah. Um, but she's like, you know, for people like us, it's, it, it, it feels a lot worse and a lot more, a lot more openly racist and dangerous. So. Absolutely right. Um, okay, well, we're just about out of time. Um, I, I know that uh, you're heading out on tour. I was looking at some of the dates. I did not see New York City on there, so I'm a little disappointed. But I think you're going to Connecticut, Massachusetts, some other places. Uh, anything you no, want to tell us about? I am coming to New York City. I'll, we'll be in uh, oh. at the end of October. So, uh, yeah, one show in Brooklyn and, um, and a couple at Bowery Ballroom. Yes, I'm tour with Luna, my band Luna. We're, we'll be out there selling T-shirts. People can't download T-shirts. And people people can come and take selfies with you, and you can regale them with your Trotskyist uh, stories. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dean Wareham. Dean, Dean, Dean Wareham, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. DeanWareham.com is the website, at WarehamDean on Twitter. Hey, Dean, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and talking to us today. Thanks, Eric. That was great. Listeners, thank you as always. We will chat again next week.